You are listening to the First English Department podcast for the month of September 2014. I'm Haley Cowens. In a moment, poet and OSU MFA alumna Natalie Shapiro will share her recently published poem, Passing and Violence. Then, I talk to English Department Chair Dr. Deborah Modelmog about the sexuality studies major and what it has to do with Ernest Hemingway. That's ahead. I'm joined today by Natalie Shapiro, who earned her MFA in poetry from Ohio State in 2008 and is the author of a book of poems entitled No Object. Uh, the poem that she's going to be sharing with us today is called Passing and Violence, and it can be found published in Pinwheel, an online journal. Thank you for being here, Natalie. Thanks for having me. All right. So. Passing and Violence. What pride I feel in America stems from our anthem being the toughest one to sing. The high segment with the red burn of the rocket, only a few can reach. Watching a stranger parallel park, I pray she abrades her neighbor. Watching football, I need to see a man die. I need to see the intractable passing and violence. Of the cruelty ringing the earth, I am a portion. I never said he was a bad man, only a larger portion. He wreaked harm on us for years, and then one day he began to die. I watched as science shattered his body to wrest the disease out, stopping just short of his failure. Failure, the word he favored over death. Me, I favored nothing over death. I held him like a brother. I knew him as an error of God, dropped at the doorstep of our age, and what could we do but save him? I began to suspect so many of machinations. How my parents had summoned me into this world, but then when I arrived, they were not here. My whole being was a setup. They called me over to sit alone with the weather and soot unfettered. They said I had differences to be resolved. After attempting the anthem upwards of 50% remark, I should have started lower, or I should have chosen something else instead. Uneasy lies the head. Thank you very much. Um, could you tell me a little bit about uh, the process of writing this poem? Uh, sure. Well, I mean, it started from hearing um, someone talk about pass- passing and violence uh, as the two elements of football that everyone enjoys the most. Okay. Um, and I sort of just like that phrase. Um, and I, you know, I mean, I was interested in writing about uh, about football, I guess, because I'm very interested in sports, even though I'm not like a huge regular sports fan, but I like the peripheral stories of sports a yeah. lot and the kind of ambient drama. So uh, that was something that I, was very compelling to me. Yeah, and I think it's very relevant right now talking about... Um, I know, it's almost like too relevant. It's like, <laughs> now I feel embarrassed. <laughs> no, you were just on top of it. Yeah, so um, I also noticed, too, about this poem, it's, you know, it's framed by our anthem, and it has, you know, the, the, this kind of thread of football running through it. So this poem seems to be really rooted in, in being American. Um, yeah. does, that, does that sort of inform this poem while you're writing it? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's... Um, I, I am kind of, like, interested across different poems in writing about the feeling of being American and being, like, a weird uh, terror in the world. Um <laughs> You know, I and this was sort of like a weird factoid that I had heard about the national anthem, and I don't know if it's true, but I heard that of all the national anthems, it is the most difficult one to sing, and it seemed like uh, an interesting sort of uh, metaphor for the guardedness of our naturalization process and 
um, just, you know, some kind of like, uh, stubborn idea of American exceptionalism. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. I think too, it's, it's also like so clearly about a war in a way that other countries' national anthems aren't necessarily like about a specific instance of violence, yeah. which is also, also fascinating. Um, this poem seems to me too, and you'll have to forgive me if I'm like, I, I'm, I'm new to the world of poetry, so you have to forgive oh, me no, if, no. I'm, if I'm, um, a little off on some things, feel free to correct me. But, um, this poem seems to me to be interested too in um, in a sort of failure. Like it, it's mentioned in the poem, um, you have the, this ability to sing, this inability to sing the national anthem, this inability um, to fight a disease in in the character in, in the hospital. Um, and I also sense a sort of failure almost in in relationships, um, particularly with that man in the hospital. Um, is there anything there? Is there? Um... Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, no, I can definitely. Um, I think that that's a, a good reading of it. I sort of the idea the um kind of disease part is um I, that kind of came out of reading a lot of these stories about actually like these uh dictators who are like dying in the hague and it's yeah. um i've I, I kind of have a fascination with those stories when they're you know sort of chronically too sick to stand trial um because it often takes so long to amass uh information on war crimes that the perpetrators are very elderly and i mean you see that you know beyond just the hague sort of across the international stage um but it's it is i it's a it is like it is a question that i have you know maybe an unanswerable question but which is the (laughs) which is the failure in that situation Yeah, um, not to attempt to try the person or to attempt to try the person. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, could you tell me a little bit about the speaker of the poem then? Because the speaker seems to be connected to, to this, this figure in, in the middle of the poem, this figure in the hospital. Yeah, I do think this, the speaker is some manifestation of an American person. Um, you know, the, the end line of the poem is an allusion to the Shakespeare uh, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, obviously, uh, like literally about, um, being in charge, <laughs> um, right. and being in power. Uh, but it's, you know, it's also, I think it figured into all the, you know, football stuff because there's, uh, so much about, uh, head trauma that is yeah. circulating around that narrative. And the football again is kind of, uh, I think a very, um, it's an American sport, um, in a way that some other sports, you know, are more international. It's, Absolutely. it's, uh, it's, um, so yeah, I think that, that it is, a, a poem that's trying to explicate some kind of, um, geopolitical power dynamic in a very, uh, sidestepping way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you touched on this a little bit, um, talking about, you know, your interest in writing about America as a sort of, you know, unique presence in this world. Um, are there any other ways that this poem sort of fits into your larger bodies of body of work? Um, is, are these kind of themes that you find yourself fascinated with? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, you know, I'm very interested in, um, like political, um, processes and institutions. And I don't really like necessarily write about them in a very, uh, like headlong or myopic way because, uh, I try to, my hope is that my poems are, um, as, as broad ranging as they can be and pull in a lot of influences, but I think they all are, um, 
like colored by some sense of, of American identity. Yeah. All right. Well, um, thank you very much for, for sharing your poem and for speaking with me about it. Is there anything else you'd like to, to add really quickly before we wrap up? Um, thanks so much. These are a great question. Okay, cool. Well, thank you for joining me, Natalie. I'm joined today by Dr. Deborah Modelmog, who is the chair of the Department of English, a professor specializing in 20th century American literature, modernism, and sexuality studies, and the author of numerous books and articles, including Reading Desire in Pursuit of Ernest Hemingway. Deborah, thank you for talking with me today. You're welcome. So before you were the chair of the English department, you were the coordinator of the sexuality studies program. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what this department kind of aims to do and what its role is here in the English department? Sure. Um, I actually founded the Sexuality Studies program in 2002. Uh, we didn't have anything like that before at OSU, and but we had a, a number of professors at the time, both in English and outside of English, who worked in this area of sexuality studies. At one point, um, similar programs were being called LGB or gay and lesbian studies. Uh, we wanted it to be much more comprehensive than that because we felt like all forms of sexuality needed to be theorized and studied, so we decided to call our program um, Sexuality Studies. It was an interdisciplinary program, so we didn't have to have any funding. All we were trying to do was to organize faculty and classes so that students could take uh, four courses that would constitute a minor in that area. It became so popular, I think we've had about 500, 600 students sign up for it so far, that we decided in 2006 to develop a graduate interdisciplinary specialization. So graduate students can now, in any department, can now attach a GIS to their graduate program, which means they just take four courses, one of which can be in their home department, but the other three have to be outside their home department um, and pursue a specialization in sexuality studies. And then in 2013, we had approved a major in sexuality studies. So we now have a BA in sexuality studies. And I think we've got about 50 majors so far. Um, the nice thing about this program is that it is truly interdisciplinary. Students take classes in five different colleges rather than one. So social work, arts and sciences, um, education and human ecology. Uh, we've even had uh, students in architecture. Um, law, uh, business, and sometimes even medicine. So we've had students take courses across the university. They love that, and apparently the employers are loving it too because uh, the students who have graduated with the major so far have said that's one of the things that employers are really picking up on and feeling that it makes them much more well-rounded and prepared for a diverse workplace and a diverse work world. Okay, that sounds great. So what makes it... Um kind of housed still in the English department, or is it not anymore? Is it really kind of transcended the English department? Yeah, it's actually never been housed in the English department, but because I've coordinated it for 12 years, I think people associated with the English department. Okay. Um, but in 2010, I believe it was, um, it became, it, for, for a while it was housed in a um, office called the Office of Interdisciplinary Programs. Okay. And that was an arts and sciences office that 
brought together all the interdisciplinary programs, film studies, international studies, middle uh, school education, uh, Latino studies, Asian American studies, uh, African American, no, not African, I'm sorry, um, disability studies. And so that we had that home for it. When that program was disbanded, when Joe Steinmetz came here as the provost, he decided he did not want that office anymore. So some of those programs went into departments. So, for example, the popular culture minor is now in the Department of English. Okay. Um, but sexuality studies, we decided we'd already formed this group called DISCO, which is the Diversity and Identity Studies Collective at Ohio State. And we were doing some things informally with sort of the eight partner programs, which were African-American and African studies, um, Asian-American studies, American Indian studies, disability studies, comparative ethnic and American studies, Latino, Latina studies, sexuality studies, and women's gender and sexuality studies, although at that time it was only women's studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were already doing things with those partners. Four, five of those partners were interdisciplinary programs. So one of them, Latino studies, went into um, Spanish and Portuguese, which seemed to be a natural home for them. Okay. The other four of us decided to start our own unit called DISCO, Uh, We were kind of called mini-disco because there was the big disco. Um, And we became an administrative unit under arts and humanities. Okay. So even though we're interdisciplinary programs that spread across the university, arts and sciences is kind of our home. And then even more particularly, arts and humanity has been our home for the past four years. Um, Latino studies just recently moved from Spanish and Portuguese into disco. So now we have all five interdisciplinary programs that deal sort of specifically with diversity included under the DISCO umbrella. So that's where our home has been. But there's always been a lot of connection to English because in, in English, I mean, think about it, you're studying literature. <laughs> there's a lot of sex that happens in literature, <laughs> a lot of sexuality that occurs. And so um, we've been doing sexuality studies in literary studies and cultural studies, folklore, um, rhetoric and composition for a very long time. We just didn't call it that. Right. We called it literary studies or literary criticism. But as people started to theorize sexuality, and this was part of the feminist um, studies movement, then the gay and lesbian studies um, criticism came along, then queer studies came along. So as we developed more theories for thinking about sexuality, it, it started to become its own entity. And so just like a lot of other interdisciplinary programs within the department, such as film studies, um, we have people who are working for the interdisciplinary program, but also for the department. So they're, they're sort of appointments, either informally or formally straddle the two homes. And sexuality studies is another instance of that, where we have faculty in the department. And we don't have any tenure lines in um, sexuality studies, so it's only an informal association. Okay. But they're associated faculty with sexuality studies, and, and they can actually teach some courses for us or conduct students in internships or in independent studies, um, but their main home department is um, English. And we, we gather those English courses that people are teaching and use them for our sexuality studies program um, but they're not really sexuality studies courses, except for a couple that we now have on the books. Okay. So for an undergraduate in particular, what makes uh, the sexuality studies major different from, say, the women's gender and sexuality studies uh, major that's housed, I think, in more of the kind of social science sphere here at Ohio State? Yeah, it's interesting that you ask that because we, when we started sexuality studies, 
women's gender and sexuality studies was called women's studies. Right. So it was a much easier um, to be clear about what the two programs were doing, even though women's studies has always, um, or at least you know, fairly recently, um, taken a sort of intersectional model to identity and to culture. And so they think about the intersections of race, gender, sexuality, um, disability, ethnicity, nationality, religion. Um, and sexuality studies does that as well. So we've had to think about now, once they were able to change their name to women's gender and sexuality studies, how are we going to explain to students what the difference <laughs> between these two programs are? Right. So one central difference is that, that women's gender and sexuality studies is a department. So they have their own faculty, uh, but they also have their own courses. And they do allow students to take up to six hours outside of their department, but most of the courses that students take will be within that particular department. Um, sexuality studies, we have a couple of courses, but most of our courses we're just borrowing from other departments around campus. So it's going to be a truly interdisciplinary, cross-college, cross-department program. You're not taking courses in a single department okay. uh, from a certain set of professors. The other difference is that with sexuality studies, our primary lens of analysis is always sexuality. Women's gender and sexuality studies, you can see that there's other sort of possible foci in that, um, in that area, and so you could have a class that didn't really deal in depth with sexuality, um, whereas we require a course to have at least 50% of content, readings, discussion, assignments be focused on sexuality in order for it to count towards our program. Okay. That makes sense. And, and women's gender and sexuality, you sort of always take a feminist approach to the, the material. Right. And I certainly welcome that. And I think a lot of our courses do that, but that is not a requirement of listing a course under sexuality studies. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So when uh, Pablo was first telling me about your work, and um, later when I was telling one of my friends about um, this interview that I was going to do, uh, we, we both had the same reaction uh, to... Uh, the fact that I was going to be interviewing a professor who both focuses on sexuality studies and Hemingway, which uh, the initial reaction is kind of like, oh, those two things don't really seem to go together <laughs> right. on the surface, um, which, you know, probably I'm sure isn't really fair to the work of Hemingway. Um, so uh, can you tell me a little bit about how those two interests, you know, go together in, in your life and in your work, uh, a little bit about their connection? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because I think some people haven't caught up with the new Hemingway. Um, and, and I was so fortunate that I got in on the ground level of the new Hemingway. And so I was sort of one of the first scholars to say, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> There's more to this guy than, than we're talking about, and let's take a closer look here. And so that has been so interesting because it's been controversial. Not everybody wanted to accept the new Hemingway or, or really wanted that Hemingway to be um, sort of brought out. Um, but then as more and more people have gotten involved, the conversation has shifted and it's just become a really interesting place to do sexuality work as well as work on race and gender and disability. Um, and so some of that is just sort of common to what's happening to our sort of canonized writers. You know, we're, we're discovering in most cases that they're much more complicated than we thought they were. And so some things have been kind of hidden from us for various reasons. Uh, some stories weren't really published or anthologized because people didn't think they were right for public consumption. Um, and so a lot of sort of reconsideration has happened of canonized writers. Faulkner is one example. Fitzgerald is another example. Um, 
James Joyce, D.H. Lawrence, um, a lot of people. There are there are stories that we just that weren't being told to us when when I was in school. Okay. But Hemingway is actually a very interesting case. And what happened for me was um, my very first year here in, in 1986, 87. I was teaching an undergraduate class, and we were reading this collection called the Nick Adams Stories. And Nick Adams is one of Hemingway's big protagonists. And so somebody, actually one of my former professors, had put together this collection of all of his stories. Um, And as we were reading it, I kind of started it, but the class helped me develop this theory about how to read this other collection that Nick Adams shows up in called In Our Time. And so I published that, um, that summer I wrote up that, that article and then published it in one of the, it was like one of my first big publications, one of the big um, journals in my field. And um, the Hemingway Society called and said, we'd like to do a session at our upcoming conference on your article. Would you be interested? I was like, yeah, sure, why not? You know, and it was in Boston. I'd never been to Boston before, so I thought, yeah. I'll just go. I'll do my session, and then we can go take the tour of Boston and kind of look look around. Well, when I got there that year, or a couple years before, a very controversial biography of Hemingway had been published, and it really focused on this um, thing that happened to him in his childhood where his mother dressed him and his older sister as twins, which meant that sometimes he was dressed in girls' clothes and sometimes he was dressed in boys' clothes. Um, and, it, you know, that sort of fell by the wayside, although it was sort of difficult for both of them. Um, but, but around the time they were eight or nine, I think, uh, maybe a little bit earlier, uh, their mother stopped doing that. But for, you know, three or four years, yeah. they were dressed similarly as twins. And some people... Um, this biography was arguing that this had a huge effect on Hemingway and that this was part of his gender anxiety and his overcompensation for masculinity. Okay. That this explained everything and it was a key to Hemingway. And then another writer wrote androgyny was the key to Hemingway. So there were all these theories that were being thrown out. And so I decided to go to the gender session at the Hemingway conference because I thought, well, that would be interesting. Well, it was a riot, um, <laughs> and there were men in the audience standing up, you know, shaking their fists, and they looked kind of looked like Hemingway, saying, "I was my my grandfather had you know a little dressing gown on when he was a baby, and he grew up to be normal, and that was just the way that you dressed boys at the time." and And I thought, there's something going on here. These people are like overreacting to yeah. this information, and so I started. I decided when I went back to start digging deeper. And that was just the start of my first book, Reading Desire in Pursuit of Ernest Hemingway. And so what I found is that there is a lot of um, unpublished, but now some of it's been published, material that shows Hemingway very interested in transgressive sexuality, um, very interested in lesbianism, in um, uh, transgender relationships. Um, He had a transgender son um, who went through part of the operation to become female and, and the name, his name, her name was Gloria. Um, and so he had, he knew, you know, a little bit about this life and he was very interested in a group of, um, sort of scientists at the time called the sexologists. Hmm. So he uh, got very interested in Havelock Ellis, who was a British sexologist who was attempting to explain the mysteries of sex to every, everyone. <laughs> but that included, non-normative sex and so he was fascinated by hair and so one author has talked about him as a fetishist um 
where hair was the, the thing that excited him. And he has characters where that's the same thing that happens. They get very interested in hair and cutting their hair and dyeing their hair, and it seems to, to excite them. Huh. Um, he has one book where the, it's called The Garden of Eden, which was published after his death, where the male and female switch roles, and so she's the boy and he's the girl. So you can see that yeah. I mean, that's just more than digging out a few skeletons out of somebody's closet. That is a whole sort of um, uh, part of Hemingway that I don't think people knew about. And it's a very, very fascinating part. And it's also tied up with racial change as well. At one point when he was in Africa in the 50s, his wife had to write him uh, a letter and say, don't forget that you're a white man. You can never be black. You know, as much as you want to be part of this this tribal brotherhood, that's not going to happen. Um, So he was just, I mean, I think he was interested, as most good writers should be, and the taboos of our society and why are they there and why when you go to another society do you not see the same taboos or you see them, you know, structured differently. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely a lot of interesting things that I don't think a lot of people first think of when they think of Hemingway. Exactly. Yeah. Um, in fact, in Carl P. Eby's review of your, of your book, Reading Desire, uh, he stated that you sort of tackle this idea of Hemingway as, as he puts it, a model of white, able-bodied American heterosexual masculinity, which I think is, you know, the initial kind of impression that um, myself and my friend had of him, which is why we, you know, reacted the way we did to your kind of dual interest. Uh, so where do you think this kind of predominant idea came from? Well, he helped to create it. Um, he was very interested in sort of fashioning his own identity. And so, you know, he did a lot of macho things. He wrote a lot of macho-focused books. Um, I don't want to defend him against the sexism and racism and homophobia and anti-Semitism that has been leveled against him for years. I think he was those things. I think he also was more complicated than those things. Mm -hmm. And um, some of the work that wasn't published shows him being more complicated and shows him rethinking some of his early ideas. Um, But it's also... That is a, that's a fascinating question to me because that's the popular culture image of Hemingway. Right. So many people get invested in that particular image of Hemingway, and it has become one of our models of masculinity. Mm-hmm. Is this red-blooded American male who, you know, goes off and does these adventurous things and risks his life and you know drinks and hangs out with his buddies and is just this, um, you know, lives life to the fullest and. That's a very attractive model to a lot of men in particular, but some women too. And so I just wonder what sort of cultural work it's doing for our world to keep reviving that image. You know, like Kenny Chesney has a a recent song about called Hemingway's Whiskey, I think. And it's about Hemingway lived hard and drank long and, you know, let's be more like him. And like, where does that come from? Why are people still interested in that model of masculinity? Right. And it sort of explains, I think, your experience at the conference with people so eager to defend that. I think that that performed masculinity is something that people feel very, almost maybe insecure about or very, you know, want to keep as, as a prominent pop culture kind of idea, it seems like. Yes, and I think that reminds us that masculinity, just like femininity, is a performance and that he performed it very, very well, you know, to where for some people you can't, you know, separate the performance from the the real man. I mean, that seems like the real man. But when you start to see all these other things about him, you realize, and even his characters too, go back and read some Hemingway, you'll see that his (laughs) male characters are a lot more 
complicated and vulnerable and um, and uh, different than maybe you thought. And his female characters too, because they've been slammed over the years for being sort of male fantasies or you know you know horrible women. Um, but they're much more complicated than that. And I think Hemingway actually was is much more sympathetic to women than people have thought because he realizes the many many forces that sort of work against them being independent, full-fledged beings in their worlds, especially like in the 1920s and 30s when his first work was coming out. Yeah. So you touched on this a little bit, um, but I wanted to talk too that um, in Evie's review, he also notes that while you don't necessarily queer Hemingway, uh, you do focus on a sort of uh, neglected by other scholarship uh, role of of homosexual desire in his work. Um, Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, and I think if I, that book was published in 1999. Mm-hmm. I think if I were to write it again, I would probably adopt the word queer. Um, but I'd have to define it. Um, and I have, actually, in some of my essays, I have talked about queer families in Hemingway's fiction. I've talked about this queer ethos in A Farewell to Arms, which is kind of considered classic Hemingway and this, right. this sort of classic love story. Um, but at that time when I was writing the book, queer was still sort of being. You know, people were wondering, what does it mean? And they, they still do that, but they were trying to figure out, is that, is that going to be the word that we latch on to? And what kind of work is it going to do? And so I, I wanted to be a little cautious of using it without really defining it in advance. And it wasn't, I mean, now I think maybe I would see it as a word that would be appropriate for um, what he was trying to do. But at the time, I, th- I felt like he was more interested in the line between homosexuality and heterosexuality and how porous mm-hmm. that line is and how many times people will say, well, I'm heterosexual, but then you can look more closely at their desires and their history and you realize, well, not really. <laughs> you know, you, you've had a lot more complicated uh, sexual experiences than that. And so how do these two identities get out in the world as our only choices? And, you know, I think Hemingway was often sort of thinking about the line between the two and especially around gender, like what happens when a man starts wanting these particular things things that seem traditionally feminine? Does that make him female or does that make him gay? And, you know, hmm. those are sort of places of anxiety for men. Yeah. So I think, um, does that answer your question? I can't remember. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I think now I would use the word queer because I think transgender is much more prominent in his work. And I think... Um, Queer might be a more accurate term for some of the sexuality of his characters, which aren't their sexuality isn't really clear, you know, and and that makes it kind of queer because they're not really fitting into one particular category. Right. So uh, your awards include the College of Humanities Diversity Enhancement Award and the Ohio State Distinguished Diversity Enhancement Award. Why is diversity important to a college education? Do you think? and how is it encouraged, at least in the English department, that you can see? Yeah, I mean, I think it's crucial, and I've been working on this for a very long time, not just around sexuality, but also race, gender, class, um, disability. And I feel like our university has made some strides in that direction, but I still feel like we are actually failing our students in some ways because we are thinking about diversity in terms of numbers. Let's mm-hmm. get more people of color here. Let's get more faculty of color here. And while I certainly, and let's get more women in certain fields, and I stand fully behind that. I think that's so important. Um, but a diversity education means really thinking seriously about 
diversity, not just as a kind of numbers quota kind of game, but you know, the complexity of the world that we live in and how none, none of us actually occupies a single identity. And so the intersections of those identities and how they can make, create conflict in our lives, they can create conflict in our cultures. Um, and I think, you know, just as an example of how we're failing students, you, you only have to take one diversity course at OSU, and that can be another course that you take towards your major, so it doesn't even have to be a singular course. And there's all sorts of courses that fit under that category, and they're not really what I would consider critical diversity. It's just as long as you get the word gender in there, then you can actually call it a diversity course. And I think, um, just as an example, and I don't know that this would have changed things, but you know what's happened recently with the band, um, you know, there has to be more education about these issues. You know, what is sexual harassment or what is sexual improperness? What is um, what does homophobia mean, you know, and, and how does that affect affect people's lives deeply? And what does it mean when you're doing those kinds of things? And I know there's lots of different, you know, uh, stories about what went on in the band. So I'm not saying that, you know, this happened or this happened. I'm, right. I'm just saying, like, I read, for example, those songs that had been written, and I don't know by whom or, or when, but right. those are atrocious, and yeah. it, they just are an indication that young people really do need some guidance in this area. And that's not to say we need to brainwash them or, you know, convince them that they have to accept certain things, but it's to say, think about what the consequences of these actions are, and, you know, if we're a, a university that truly has an anti-discrimination clause, and that we truly believe that a more diverse world is, is, a, is an advantage and is a, is a priority for excellence rather than, and a condition for excellence rather than just, you know, something that we add on, then we have to take it much more seriously than we are. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, can you tell me anything about what specific steps are being taken by, by either this department or in the university to try and achieve that goal or anything that you think could still be taken? <laughs> Yeah, I've been on a lot of committees over the years, and I was associate dean in the College of Humanities for a while and started what we call the Diversity Enhancement Program, which was a mentoring program for faculty of color, new assistant professors of color. Mm -hmm. And what I loved about that program was that it was not just like a one-shop thing, like you get a mentor and that person helps you get tenure. It was, let's think about climate, let's think about uh, work issues that make life difficult for some people or, or, or give people an increased uh, burden because they have to do more mentoring than other people do. Um, and so we had a pedagogy workshop, we had um, a writing workshop, we had what we call the Faculty of Color Caucus, which was all faculty of color in the college who would come together to talk about issues, professional issues that related to them. And it was just kind of a closed door thing, although other people could come, but it was really you know, let's talk about us for a change and what we need. And the real um, uh, project there was to try to help um, assistant professors, um, especially of color, navigate um, their professional lives a little bit better because we were at that time losing about three faculty members per year of color from the College of Humanities. And we felt like oh. that was kind of working against our, our diversity goals because, you know, people were coming and going. But it was also to form community, you know, because sometimes there'll be one person in a department and, you know, they're the gay person or they're the, the right. black person and, and they don't feel like they have a full community, maybe even people who understand their scholarship. And so right. 
or the issues that they face as a teacher. So it was an attempt to give community across the college. And I think we need more things like that where, you know, people can find community and form community. And that's what I think sexuality does. That's why I think all of our interdisciplinary connections in the Department of English are really important because they give people other intellectual and social communities that I think help them to survive at this university. Um, but in the, the, And I was on the No Place for Hate task force, and that kind of didn't go anywhere. Um, so I've been on a lot of diversity committees and, and initiatives. I think President Drake has to make this a priority. Right. And we, have, we had a diversity action plan, and the university expired in 2012. So we don't even really have a diversity action plan. So that has to be one of his priorities. But also, as a department, I think we can do things, too. And we have a diversity and inclusion committee, and they're doing great stuff. Um, we are trying to educate uh, faculty and students a little more around diversity issues. So we'll be having some informational workshops, but also parts of our department meetings will be focused on some of these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and just trying to, we're going to do a survey this year to kind of take stock of how people feel about diversity in the department and whether there are things they're not telling us that we need to know. And, you know, just trying to provide more support for diversity, but also more education. We need more education about issues that people face because of, you know, like as, a, as an out gay person going into a classroom, Sometimes you can get very different student evaluations than the white heterosexual male who goes in there and and everybody loves him. So we just have to be aware that some things can come back to haunt you in different ways and that we need to figure out how to read evaluations and support people in situations where it might not be the common classroom. Right. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Modelwag, for speaking with me today. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. That's all for our first show. Thank you so much to Dr. Deborah Modelmog and Natalie Shapiro for joining us. And thank you to our first listeners. We hope you'll join us again in October. This has been the English Department at Ohio State, ruining your favorite novel since 1873.